So I'm going to start with a question. Do you remember crop circles? Crop circles. Maybe they haven't been in the news much lately, but there was some time ago where crop circles were kind of all the rage. It was a big deal. It was in the news, and it was back in the 1980s. So some of you are too young to remember these things, but, but it was a big deal. And it was around the time that I was graduating from high school uh, from this church and going off to college. And I remember after I graduated from Tabor College and I had started at the University of Kansas, I was actually living with Kevin Friesen in Lawrence, Kansas. Those were good times, weren't they, Kevin? Yes, they were. And, and I had started my PhD in math before I changed to computer science. And I met a young man who was a PhD student in mathematics at the University of Kansas. He was from China. He was incredibly bright, very intelligent, brilliant young man. And he was fascinated with crop circles, of all things. Maybe from a mathematical perspective, I mean, there were some of them were starting to show up in, in forms of like fractals and mathematical shapes and forms. But he was also just fascinated with the paranormal and the spiritual. It was something that was very foreign and new to him. And despite his academic training, uh, or maybe... To complement that academic training, he was looking at the other side of things. Is, are there things that aren't so concrete and real? Are there things that are spiritual? And when he found out that I was a Christian, I think I was the first Christian he'd ever met, coming to the United States from China and being in a public university, and, and he had a, hundred, a thousand questions for me. He wanted to know so much about Christ and the Bible, and why do I believe this? And it was authentic. It wasn't that he wanted to become a Christian, but he just was curious about so many things, and he asked me hard questions, hard, really hard questions. Some of them I could answer. I'd gone to OBA for two years. I'd gone to Tabor for four years. I'd grown up in the church, and so I knew a lot of answers, but he also asked me questions I didn't know answers to, and I would go home and I'd just be pouring over my Bible and, and trying to think, how do I answer this guy? I don't know the answer to this. And some of it was just because I hadn't experienced Christ in that way. I didn't know how to relate to it. It was maybe just not Bible knowledge, but it was more just uh, what does it mean to be a Christian? He was asking some questions, I remember, that kind of stumped me. Things like, so how does God speak to you? How do you hear it? How have you heard it? Like, oh, I don't know at the time. Now, now at age 54, I can, I can point to a number of times through my life that I can say very clearly God spoke to me in this way, and I could answer that now. But as a 22-year-old, I didn't have all those experiences. And he wanted to know, if I were to become a Christian, how would I feel it? How would I sense it? How would I know the next day that I was a Christian and I was different? What would it be like? And, and trying to explain that to him, it was hard. So these were just some hard questions that I received. And, and we all get asked hard questions at times, at some point in our life, especially if you have kids, right? Mommy, daddy, fill in the blank. What might the question be? Where do babies come from? Well, I don't know. I don't know if we're ready to talk about that yet. Or, or um, why can't I dye my hair? Um, I, I, those, are, those can be hard questions. As a computer scientist, as a software engineer, I got asked a lot of technical hard questions. Things like, well, what's the difference between a closure in JavaScript and a closure in Kotlin programming languages? I don't know. I don't remember. Um, uh, or maybe I did know, but I'd have to figure it out. Or, you know, how do we balance reducing technical debt with user story feature development? 
Those were the, that was my area, software engineering. And, and so these were hard questions that I got posed. Well, the point here is context from Mark 12. Jesus was being asked hard questions. If you open your Bibles, if you haven't already, I encourage you to be in Mark 12. I'm not going to read through the whole first part, but I want to summarize it, and then we'll hit the main verses for today. Mark 12 starts with Jesus telling a parable, as he often did. But this parable was a very unpopular parallel for, parable for his audience. A lot of times his parables were to teach um, a relatable thing of the kingdom of heaven is like this. And those were useful parables. But this was a parable that was kind of directed at the people he was speaking at in a convicting, in a negative way. So he was talking to the leaders and the elders of, of the Jewish church. And, and it was a parable of the landowner. The landowner and the tenants. And when the landowner sent uh, representatives after some time, so they'd had the harvest, he sent his representatives to collect the rent, essentially, to, to get the fruit from uh, his tenants. And what did they do? They beat up his representative. And he sent another and another. And they even killed them. And he thought, well, maybe if I send my son, surely they'll receive my son as a representative for me, and they'll accept him, and they'll pay him what is due. And they didn't. They said, oh, we'll kill his son as well. Well, this was a parable, but it was very convicting for these people because Jesus was God's son. And people who had come before already had been rejected by these Jewish leaders. And so they didn't like this. And the fact that Jesus was now God's son, and they were rejecting him, uh, that was not a popular parable for them. So what did they do? They proceeded in the next couple of sections of, of Mark chapter 12 to ask him hard questions. That's the connection. To ask him hard questions. The first one was um, a question about paying taxes to Caesar. They thought, we don't like this guy, Jesus, and so maybe if we can capture him, trap him in some question that maybe he will say something negative about the government, we'll be able to arrest him and get rid of him. And so they asked him a question about, you know, who should we, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he answered them very wisely. You know, whose, whose figure is that on the coin? Well, it's Caesar's. We'll give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And so then they asked him another question about a woman who was married and her husband died. And then the brother, as was the custom, married her. And that continued. And a series of brothers died. And so the question was, at the end, at the resurrection, whose husband will she be? And Jesus answers, you just don't get it, guys. At the resurrection, there won't be marriage like we have it here. And so he gave an answer. And that, that brings us to the verses that we have today. And I'm going to read them again. And we'll talk a little bit through them. So in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34, again, it says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. 
You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So notice what happened here. Jesus started, as I mentioned, providing, pointing out a truth that was convicting, the first parable. And the Jewish leaders were unhappy, so they tried to trap Jesus with some hard questions. But the context for these verses, someone noticed that Jesus was giving good answers. So he asked what I think was no longer a question to try and trap him. I think this was a genuine question that he had. So you seem to be like a pretty wise guy. Maybe you are the son of God. So what is the greatest commandment of all of them? Which one is the most important one? I think he genuinely wanted to know the answer to this one. And I think that's an important point to notice for us as well. None of us are God. None of us are Jesus. But we get asked hard questions. And I think it's important to be able to give good answers. That when people respect you, they listen. Give them a reason to respect you. Do your homework, be wise, be trustworthy, be kind, be selfless, and then be ready with an answer. Uh, familiar verses of being prepared with an answer from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. It says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. God commands us to be prepared with an answer, uh, to use our mind. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Sometimes that will happen but to study, to search the scriptures and examine and to find an answer. It's a way of serving others when we're willing to do that work. This greatest commandment passage in in Mark 12 is rich. It's full of a lot, and I don't have time to go through all of it. And so I'm just going to focus on one aspect, and that is today. I want to think about how do we love God with all our mind? What does that mean? He, he commands us to do that. It's a part of that first thing. Okay, there's, there's other things there, our strength, our mind, our soul, um, our heart. But let's just focus on mind for a few minutes here. So how do we love God with all our mind? I'm going to answer that question by asking two more questions. So how, first of all, what is it that we fill our minds with? And second, how do we use our mind for his glory? Those are the things I want to wrestle with for just the next few minutes. In other words, how do we use our mind uh, is how we love God with it. How we use our mind is how we love God with our mind. First one, how do we, what do we fill our minds with? I like to go to Romans chapter 12 verses 1 to 2, familiar passage. It's a great passage that talks about the mind. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Well, it's talking about using our bodies. Then it goes into, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What does that mean, do not conform to the pattern of this world? What is the pattern of this world? What's the pattern of thinking? What's the pattern of living? How is it that this world tends to operate? In a way, what's the culture and, and what's the, the normal mode of operations? I would suggest that it starts with pride. The pattern of this world actually starts with pride. C.S. Lewis, in his great book, Mere Christianity, has a chapter titled, The Great Sin. And in there, he describes what he believes is the great sin, pride or self-conceit. The opposite of which, he says, is humility. He goes on in that chapter to explain how he thinks you could tie all sin to pride at its core, at its root. I think that pride most commonly we see in the form of selfishness. We think of ourselves first. What do I want to do? How do I want to be treated? How do I feel? What will I do with my money? Or what will I do with my time? It's a selfish attitude. It's normal. It's the pattern of this world. It's normal to think of myself first. It's the way we tend to operate. The world gives us so much to fill our minds with, right? Media, sports, entertainment, trivia, appearances, how do I appear to others, fads. They're all me-focused. Things, uh, questions about what do I enjoy, what will make me happy, what will make me look good, what will make me popular. I believe this is the pattern of this world. Focusing on me, filling my mind and my time with my pursuits. Do what I want. Don't worry about truths that God has established. But in these verses in, in Romans chapter 12, he says, don't conform to the pattern of this world. That might be natural. It might be what we automatically assume or think about is thinking of myself, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your minds. What does that mean? So how do we change our minds? How do we transform our minds? How do we renew our minds? Can we reprogram our minds? Can we reconfigure the neural pathways in our brains to think in different ways? I believe that we can. In fact, at Tabor, our newest academic program is a new Masters of Education program on neuroscience and trauma. It focuses on how do we understand how the, how, how the brain works, how neural pathways are formed, and in particular, when a, when a student or a person experiences trauma, how does that affect their brain? How does that change those neural pathways? And then what can we do, in particular as educators, but any one of us, how, what can we do, what are strategies we can employ in order to change the way that our brain works so that we can change our thinking from that trauma-informed, trauma-induced way of reacting to be able to grow and heal and learn. And it's been a very successful program. There's a need for it. There's trauma all around us. And we've been, in fact, I think quite pleasantly surprised how successful it is as we enter in this summer into our second year of that program. But I think it, they, they have adopted this, Romans 12, 1 and 2, as the primary verses that they're basing the entire program on, that transforming of our minds. Chances are good that you all and I have a pattern of thinking that defaults to serving ourselves. 
It's normal. It's human nature. It's, uh, it's what we do. I think God knows that, and that's why the second greatest commandment there is, is love your neighbor as yourself, because it's a default. We know you're going to love yourself. You're going to take care of yourself. You're going to feed yourself. You're going to clothe yourself. You're going to provide for yourself. You're going to provide housing for yourself. You're going to provide for your emotional needs. That's normal and natural. Now do that for your neighbor. Do those same things that you would naturally do for yourself, for your neighbor. That's the command, the second command that that Christ gives us. Take all of those things that we might discipline ourselves to do, we might enjoy doing. God prompts us us to do these things for our neighbor. So rather than the pattern of this world that says it's all about me, what are we to fill our minds with? Well, there's lots of scripture that helps us with this as well. Philippians 4, verses 7 through 9, we know these. They give us a clue. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I love how that ends, that if we fill our minds with these things, the God of peace will be with you. God wants us to fill our minds with things of him. It's human nature for wrong thoughts to enter our minds. It happens all the time, whether it's from external or internal, somehow wrong thoughts, harmful thoughts enter our mind. We're to capture them, I believe. This is kind of rare to use Song of Solomon but, uh, in a sermon, but I believe Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15, it says, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards are vineyards that are in bloom. And I think we can take that and, and think about it, capturing thoughts, those thoughts that ruin our vineyards, that ruin our mind. As they enter in, can we capture them? We can think of wrong thoughts as those foxes that ruin the vineyard. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 through 6 is similar. talks about capturing our thoughts as well. It says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. It's talking about demolishing strongholds, but it's really talking about in our mind here. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. I believe that's what God calls us to do as wrong, harmful thoughts pop into our mind to capture them. It's not that they're not going to come. They will come. But to capture them and say, no more. Jesus, I don't want to fill my mind with that. I want to fill my mind with things from you. So we fill our minds with the things of God and capture the thoughts that are contrary. It takes discipline. But I believe we can train our minds to do it. So that's the first question. What do we fill our minds with? The second question is, how do we use our mind for God's glory? How do we praise God with our mind? What does it mean to love God with all your mind? How do we praise him with our mind? Well, at this point, I'm actually going to shift a little bit and talk a little bit about Tabor College because colleges are all about intellectual pursuit and the mind and the training of the mind. It's not the only thing we do. We have a residential program, and that's an important part of it. Students play sports, and they're involved in activities, and and they live in the dorms, and that's very much a part of the Tabor College experience. But as a college, the core of it is a training of our mind, okay? And so 
learning prepares a person to become a productive member of society. You go to college in order to learn things so that you can get a job and, and contribute to society. But we think it's much more than just that. We do this at Tabor. Of, uh, we have alumni who have learned good things and are making a difference in the world um, that are, are doing really positive things. I can, I can list off numerous people that have great accomplishments, whether it's from uh, some of my own classmates who have gone off and worked on NASA space missions and sent, sent uh, telescopes off into, into space, or a good friend who's teaching at MIT and is studying basically how to solve world hunger. How do we put, do logistics and put supplies and things that are needed into place around the world so that when a catastrophe happens, we can uh, jump in quickly and, and help people. I can tell you, Karen and I, I, I forgot to mention, my wife Karen has been accompanying on, on the piano, and she's, I've been accompanying the accompanist on choir tour. It's been really wonderful. And I just love traveling the world with, with Karen as we go out and we meet friends of Tabor and donors. We recently were in California, and we met someone named Dale Fleming. I've told the, the students this story recently. He invented this thing called the pipette puller. This is a Tabor alum. I'd never heard of what a pipette puller was. My science was in computer science and, and software engineering, but if you've ever done any kind of biology, uh, uh, microbiology, neuroscience at a graduate level, you probably have used his pipette pullers. They, they take these glass filaments and they stretch them. His machine will stretch them very thin to where the end, the point, is so tiny, you can't even see it with the naked eye. You have to look at it in a, with a microscope, and it's so small, that you can inject something into a single cell, or you can sense electrical changes in a single cell. It's fascinating technology. And this is a Tabor alum. And so he's taken what he learned, and he's gone on, and he's innovated, and he's done something that makes a difference for society. So we do those things, like all colleges do those things. But it is much more than just learning that prepares people for a career or to help the world. In fact, Knowledge alone is dangerous. In 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 3, it says, We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up, while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. I believe God gives us a purpose for our learning. We don't learn for the sake of learning. We don't go to college just to learn something for the sake of knowing something, or even just the sake, for the sake of making money or looking good. But I believe God gives us a deeper, broader purpose. At Tabor, our mission statement is to prepare students for a life of learning, work, and service. We could stop right there, and most colleges would have that. Preparing people for a life of learning, work, and service. But the last part is what's most important. For Christ and his kingdom. Everything that we do is informed by that for Christ and his kingdom. These traditional college years of about ages 18 to 22 are some of the most important years in our lives. They're the time when, for the most part, we leave home for the first time. We become independent. We go off and we start making decisions for ourselves. We decide what we're going to eat without mom and dad being there. We decide if we're going to get up and go to class or go to church without mom and dad being there. Um, we start thinking about what's my purpose? Who am I? Why do I exist? Does, do, what do I believe? Is there a God? Does he have a plan for my life? 
What's he calling me to? What's my vocation? And perhaps even, who am I going to spend my life with? These are important decisions that often get made in those years of 18 to 22, and that's why we love being in that moment. We have students that come to us, and sometimes they come with ideas of, I want to do this, I want to do that. And it's most often, I think, seen most prominently when you have an athlete who comes and says, I'm going to the NBA or the NFL or the MLB, and they come and they think, that's what I'm going to do. And at some point, they realize, maybe I'm not going to make it. (laughs) And at that moment of crisis, and whether it be in athletics or be in some other, you know, it could even be in music, I am going to be the greatest piano performance major in the world. I'm going to be on stages all over the world. And they realize, oh, I'm not even the best pianist at Tabor. Maybe I won't be the best pianist in the world um, or vocalist or whatever it may be. That, that realization, it's great to be there in that moment when a student comes to that realization. Who am I? What's my identity? What does God want me to do? And that's what I love about Tabor. Tabor is what I call a critical mass Christian college. I described this in Sunday school, so I'll keep it brief here. The idea is that all of our faculty and staff are Christians. We work very hard to hire well and to make sure that everyone has an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. But our students, we don't require that of them. Most of them, a supermajority of them, are Christians. They come to us wanting to be at a Christian college, wanting to, to grow in God's Word. But there's a minority of them who don't necessarily know Christ yet, but they know we're a Christian college. And praise the Lord, we see many of them come to know Christ. They come and they are exposed to the love of Christ, partly through their peers, the other students, partly through their faculty and staff and coaches. And last semester, we saw at least a dozen students make first-time commitments for Christ at Tabor College. Praise the Lord for that. And I say that not to brag, look at what God is doing at our ministry, but for, for you to rejoice in your ministry. You're a Mennonite Brethren Church. There is a rich history between Enid Mennonite Brethren Church, now Cross Point, and Tabor College. There's probably hundreds, maybe thousands of people who have come from this church or had a close connection to this church and have gone to Tabor, and many who have come back into this church. And so, just like you have many different ministries, children's ministry, youth ministry, adult ministry, various different ministries, you have a college ministry. Part of it may be here in Enid, but part of it is in Hillsborough, Kansas. It's a first-class college ministry that you are a part of. And so, I come saying thank you for being a part of that ministry. And your ministry is thriving, and there's some great things that are happening. I believe God is at work at Tabor as we develop our students' minds so that they can bring glory to him. I'm going to wrap up with just a couple of comments. There was a song that was just sung, Oh Love. It's been, I think, my favorite song that the choir has sung along this. And I've gotten to hear it six times now. Um, And this time I was right up front. And so it just enveloped me. I had tears in my eyes. It was just a powerful song of God's love. Well, I looked up last night I don't know if you all, the choir students, have looked at the the context. It's based on, the song is based on and inspired by a poem that was written in 1889 by a Scottish Scottish minister who, when he was 19, he became blind and his fiancée left him. And there was great sorrow. His sister 
cared for him for many years. And then on the eve of his sister's marriage, wedding, uh, he wrote those words. And there are a few words that really stuck out to me. Um, The first one is, I give thee back the life I owe. That response to God, that God has loved us by sending Jesus, and he has saved us, and his grace is overwhelming. And our response is to give back that life that we owe to him. What a joy it is to give back. That's, a, that's an act of love. And the second part talks about, oh, joy that seeks me through pain. Well, I understand that better now, understanding the pain of the guy who wrote that, those, those lyrics. Um, and so as we seek joy in pain, um, it says, oh, joy that seeks me through the pain. I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be, that hope that in the morning my tears will be gone. God brings us great hope and joy, even in hard times. It's a choice that we make to follow Christ, to love God. He he commands us to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's a choice that we all can make, and it's a mental choice. It's in our mind. And so as we prepare our mind, I invite you to turn those two questions on yourself. What are you filling your mind with? Is it all edifying? Is it glorifying to God? Is it the things of God? I pray that it will be. And the second question, how are you using your mind for God's glory? What have you learned? What are your skills? What has God given you? What have you practiced and developed over the time? And how do you Give that back, the life you owe to God. How do you give that back to him and for his glory? Thanks for having us here. It is a joy to be in Enid and to be in this church. The last time I was on this stage and brought a message was, I think, 1990, when I was a senior at Tabor. It's been a long time. It's good to be back. There are many people here that... I know, love God and love the work that is happening in this church and the work at Tabor. We thank you so much for that. I'm so glad that you have Asher. As you can tell, my training is not in preaching. I'm a computer scientist. But you have Asher, and he's a great preacher, and I know you appreciate him, and I am so glad that he is here, and I appreciate him so much. Appreciate you and having us and hosting us. Let me close this with a prayer of thanksgiving. We thank you, God, for sending us your son, Jesus. We thank you for forgiveness of sins. God, we do owe you our life. And I pray that that would be a joyful, loving response that we would give back to you. We ask, God, that your spirit would guide us as we go out from here. I pray that the work that you have given us to do would be for you and your kingdom here on earth. May you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen.